0: Uh, For today, we're going to be looking at Genesis 23. If you have been with us, you know that we have been studying the book of Genesis since the beginning of this year, and uh, we're getting close to being halfway through the book of Genesis. Uh, For this first half, uh, we've looked a lot at the life of Abraham. Uh, Beginning in Genesis 12, we began to study Abraham's life, and what we've seen in Abraham's life is what it means to walk by faith. Now, if you've not been with us, it's important that you understand something. Uh, Abraham is not a perfect example of someone who has walked by faith. Abraham is someone who has struggled greatly in the Scripture to walk by faith. But Abraham points us towards the one whose faith is perfect. He points us towards Jesus Christ. Uh, That is the one true hero of all Scripture. And so, as we look to Abraham's life, it's important that we don't look to it and try to emulate Abraham but that we look to it and learn about Abraham's faith so that we can better learn about our faith and the God in whom our faith rests. And today we see an example in Abraham's life of what it means to walk by faith. There are times that we've seen in Abraham's life some very unfamiliar situations, and yet we still learn from them. We've learned what it means to trust the Lord and believe in the Lord, even though we don't face the exact same circumstances that Abraham has. But today, we're going to look at an event in his life that will be very familiar to many of us. It is Abraham dealing with the death of his wife. And for all of us here, we either have or we will face the death of those we love. And I think God's Word can help us to better understand how it is we're to respond to death and how it is we're to mourn as believers. And we're going to look at those points as we walk through this text. So, Let's start by reading Genesis chapter 23 and then I'm going to pray for our time in this word. So if you would follow along with me and let's look at what God's word says to us today. Beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 23, this is what God says. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place." Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron... In Machpelah, which is east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property For a burying place by the Hittites. If you would pray with me for our time in God's word. Father, we come to you this Lord's day in the name of Jesus. And we ask that you would speak to us. And Lord, this is a text that again we can easily just kind of skim over. For the most part it seems to be a text that is about the negotiation for the price of a cave to bury a loved one in. But Lord... This text speaks as all texts do to the Gospel. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to understand how this text, Genesis 23, applies to our lives today. Especially, Lord, help us to understand how it is we are to respond biblically to death and to the death of those we love. How we as Christians should respond to those who are grieving and mourning even today, this Lord's Day, the death of those they love. Help us to see these things and apply them to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I've already mentioned, today's text is familiar to us, and in other ways it's foreign to us. Fortunately, I don't think any of us will have to go through the process that Abraham goes through here to find a burying place for our loved ones. And so uh, today is not an application of how do you negotiate the price of a cave and how do you meet at the gate of a city to figure out where you're going to bury those you love. And yet, there is a very familiar aspect of the text today, and that is the issue of death and mourning it 's something that we all have faced it's something that we all will face, and yet, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, I fear that it 's often something we don 't face biblically. What I mean by that is you find out a lot about what someone believes about death, about God, about god 's word when they deal with the death of those they love. You find out where their faith truly rests you find that as Christians, we have a lot of cliches that we throw out when people are mourning. And you find that oftentimes, we don't want to mourn at all. But I think there's a way the Scripture tells us we are to deal with death. And so I hope that there'll be that application for us today to to better equip us how to respond when we deal with something that is most certain in life, death and dying. We'll do that by looking at how Abraham responds and how God's Word tells us we are to respond. Beginning with the first point that I've put in your notes there. And it's this. Believers should mourn death. Believers should mourn death. Now, why make a point that may seem obvious? Well, it's because of this. I have found in my experiences at funerals and in churches when people die, that there is a misconception among Christians that we are not supposed to grieve and that we are not supposed to mourn. And you find it in this way. You go to the funeral of a grieving widow or widower, of a grieving parent, of someone who has lost someone they loved, And you will hear over and over and over again, and perhaps you and I are the ones saying to them things like, you don't need to worry. They're in a better place now. They're not in pain anymore. We need to not be sad. We need to celebrate because they're with Jesus now. Now those statements, I believe, are correct biblical statements. But I fear that sometimes we share them in the wrong way. The way we share them at times is like this. We're essentially saying to the person, don't be sad anymore. Don't cry. Don't grieve. You don't need to worry. You don't need to grieve. You don't need to mourn because everything is okay. And yet I think the Scripture points us towards the reality that, reality that as Christians, we are to mourn. As Christians, we are to grieve, and for each of us, that may look very different. Our society tells us there are stages of grief, or there are seasons of grief, or there are periods of grief, and yet the Scripture doesn't point to any of those things. The Scripture simply points to grief and to mourning as a normal, practical thing in the life of believers. We see it, for example, here in Abraham's life. Genesis 23 starts off by telling us that Sarah lived 127 years. Now, every time something like that's in the Scripture, it's there for a purpose. In fact, Sarah is one of the few women in all of Scripture that we actually know the age she was when she died. And so our question is to be, why does Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, want us to know how old she was? Well, perhaps it is to help us better understand why it is that Abraham is grieving as he is. We know from Genesis that Abraham was about 75 years old when he left the land of his fathers. We know from Genesis that Sarah was about 10 years younger than him. That means she would have been 65. We know that they were at least married then, which would mean that they had been married for at least 60 years. But chances are they were married a lot longer than that. In Abraham's day, it was very common for women to be married in their mid to upper teens Chances are, that's when Sarah and Abraham would have been married. But even if they weren't married until she was in her 20s, they would have been married for a century. A hundred years of marriage. Now, if you've walked with us through Genesis, you know that there were some ups and downs to that marriage. You know that there were some times when things probably weren't so good between Abraham and Sarah. And yet we know from the writer of Hebrews that Abraham and Sarah stand as two who are commended for their faith in the Old Testament. And so as they struggled in their faith, they also would have grown in their faith. And so when now Abraham deals with the death of his wife, he is dealing in part with the death of himself. See, Genesis teaches us that even before the fall, as God had this design for marriage, that when two come together, the two become one flesh and so whether you've been married for two months or a hundred years you are one with that person and that's why it is so grievous when half then is taken away in death and that is something that should be mourned and that's what we see in abraham in his response Verse 2 tells us that he goes in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, when we think of mourning and weeping, we may have a misunderstanding here that somehow Abraham is kind of quietly sulking in the corner. But the Hebrew word here, more accurately translated, is that Abraham was weeping loudly. He was wailing. He was loud. People knew that he was mourning and that he was grieving. This was something very expressive. And this stands out to us about Abraham because up to this point in Genesis, we have no account of Abraham crying or weeping over anything. Now that doesn't mean that Abraham didn't cry to this point. But it does mean that in God's revelation to us, he doesn't want us to see it until now because this stands out to us. So think about that for a second. You go back to Genesis 12, when Abraham is called to leave everything he knows, to leave the land of his fathers, to leave everything behind. Genesis 12 says nothing to us in that moment of Abraham weeping. You go then to when Abraham is standing on that hillside and he is watching Sodom and Gomorrah burn. And as he is watching it burn, he does not know, at least we're not aware of him knowing, that Lot is alive. He doesn't know if Lot is burning with it. And yet in that moment, this city that he had pleaded with the Lord to spare, the Scripture doesn't say anything about him weeping or lamenting. You go to that text which is so difficult for us to grasp, where Abraham has a blade lifted to take the life of his son, his only son, and the Scripture says nothing of him weeping or lamenting. It's not until we get to this funeral scene where Abraham is with his wife who has died that he is mourning and that he is weeping so the question for us then should be, why? Why is it that Abraham is mourning so intensely? Why is it that we as Christians then should mourn? It's because the Scripture says something to us about death. You see, many times we treat death as a celebration. We treat death as a passing. And for some, I understand that. I understand there are many, there are some you have loved, there are some that I have loved, who suffered Terribly in this world, who suffered and suffered and suffered, and so we look at death in those moments as a welcome thing. But the scripture tells us, even then, death is not something we celebrate like we celebrate the life of a newborn child, because death, the scripture tells us, is an enemy. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says it this way the last enemy. To be destroyed is death. You see, death is a result of the fall. Death is a result of sin. We go back to God's creation of Adam and Eve and all living things, and it is all good, and there is no death. But what happens? They rebel against God and they sin. And in consequence of their sin, as God speaks to them of the consequence of their sin, He says to Adam, from death... From dust you have come, and to dust you're going to return. He tells Adam, death is a consequence of the fall. It is not something to celebrate. And from that moment forward, we see that death, even at the age of 127, has a bitterness to it. Has a sting to it. And that is why we then mourn. And we need to hear that. Because oftentimes in the church, we don't talk about mourning, and we don't talk about grieving, and we don't talk about lamenting. We talk about being happy. and We talk about having joy. And those, again, are proper biblical things. But they have to be held up in the context of all of Scripture. And Scripture also talks about lamenting. In fact, there's a whole book of the Scripture that talks about lamenting. Lamentations. It's about lament. Many of the Psalms speak of lamenting. There are places in the Scripture where you see holy men of God lamenting and pouring out their souls before God and basically saying to God, God, why are you letting me experience this? God, why have you taken so much from me? God, I don't understand this. That is grief. That is mourning. And the Scripture says there is a place for it. But the Scripture also says our mourning and our grief should look very different than the mourning and grief of the world around us. And that's the second point that I've put in your notes there. While believers should mourn, they should not mourn like those who have no hope. There should be a difference in how we as Christians mourn and grieve and how the world around us mourns and grieve. Every funeral that I am a part of, at the graveside, there's a passage that I always read. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read to you just a verse from it this morning. Verse 13, Paul says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, speaking of those who have died that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. What is Paul saying there? Paul does not say, we don't want you to grieve. Paul assumes grief. But in his assumption of grief, Paul says, our grief should look very different than the grief of the world, because in our grief, we should have hope. And I believe that's what we see here in Abraham's grief. Now, the remainder of this chapter is essentially Abraham among the Hittites talking about buying a cave to bury Sarah in. And it can be a little bit of a confusing text to us because this isn't exactly how we do things today. And essentially, Abraham goes and he says he wants the cave, and someone says they'll give it to him, and he says he wants it, and they say they'll give it to him, and he says that they say you don't have to pay for it, but if you were going to pay for it, here's how much it was, and then he says, okay, now I'll pay for it. It can seem like kind of a weird barter to us, but it's important that we understand there's a context and there's a culture here that's different than ours. For example, in this last couple of weeks in Malaysia, I was among many, many different cultures there. And one of the individuals that I spent a little bit of time with, along with Chris and with Chip, uh, was a guy from a Persian culture. And Chris was telling us about the difference between our culture and the Persian cultures, especially in the context of when you offer someone something. He said that if you offer someone from a Persian culture, someone you don't know very well, if you offer them something, it is customary for them to refuse. Even if they want it. And then you offer it a second time and it's customary for them to refuse. But culturally, you're supposed to keep offering until they say yes to it. And so this can get somewhat schizophrenic for us. Okay, would you like something to drink? No, I don't want anything to drink. Okay, but you're supposed to ask again. Now really, do you want something to drink? Nope, I don't want anything to drink. That's good with me, but you keep going. Really, do you want something to drink? Yes, I would love something to drink. I'm very thirsty. Now... You and I experienced that and we're like, why didn't they just tell us that the first time? Well, it's because there's a cultural context. And in that culture, there's another switch there. If you actually know the person very well, then the first time you ask them, then they will respond to you that they want something. So if you, this week perhaps, are in a Persian culture, and you want to drink something, and someone asks you if you want to drink something, you should say, no, I don't want anything to drink. And then they'll say, no, really, do you want something to drink? And you should say, no, I'm not thirsty. And then when they say the third time, would you like something to drink? You should say, yes, I'm dying of thirst. I would love to drink something. That is a cultural difference. Now, we don't know the exact context of the Hittite culture. And so there's all kinds of things that could be going on here. This could just be the appropriate way for you to buy something. For you to basically offer to pay, and then to say, don't pay. And you offer to pay, and they say, don't pay. But if you pay, here's the price, and then you pay. We don't know exactly what's happening here. But it's important that we understand, regardless of the culture, what it is Abraham is doing. You see, in Abraham's context, which isn't so unfamiliar to us, Abraham would have taken Sarah and buried her in the land of her father's in the land of his fathers. That's what some of us still do today. Our cemeteries in Nelson County have all kinds of people in them that didn't actually live in Nelson County. But this is where their father and their father's father and their father's father's father were buried. And so this is where they're going to be buried. Some of you are going to be buried in a cemetery in a place where you really didn't spend a lot of time because that's where your family cemetery is. In Abraham's day you were buried in the land of your people. And so for Abraham here to go through all of this, to bury Sarah in a foreign land, there's something significant going on here. And what I believe it is, is this. Abraham is keeping his hope in the promises of God. God has promised Abraham an inheritance and a land But do you realize the only piece of land that Abraham ever owns in his lifetime is the tomb that he buries his wife and later himself in? God had laid out all these promises before him. You're going to have land. You're going to have nations. I'm going to bless all these people through you, Abraham. And yet now Abraham is near the end of his life. His wife has now died. And between them, they have one child and they have no land. Now for many of us, at that moment, we would just throw in the towel. Say, alright Lord, I tried. I tried. I followed you, and I followed you, and I followed you, but Lord, you didn't come through, and I'm going home now. But that's not what we see in the faith of Abraham. He has grown and matured to the point where now he is trusting in the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and so many others, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. Some of you have bought into the lie that the promise will come without death. And that the promise will come without suffering. And yet the scriptural equation is this. Suffering and death comes before the promise. We ultimately see it in the Gospel. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but how did we get to that point? Because Christ suffered and died on our behalf. Abraham dies only owning this little plot of land. Christ died on the cross not even owning that. When Christ dies, in fact, someone has to come forward to offer up a tomb to bury him in. And yet, it is through him and in him that we receive our full inheritance. What Abraham is doing for us, Christian, is he is pointing us to look somewhere else. If your hope is in this world, then your hope will fail. If your hope is in the things of this world, then ultimately it will fail. Because you and I share something with Abraham. At the end of it all, no matter what's in your bank today, no matter what comes after your name on the deed, at the end of it all, you will be in the ground. And the only thing that you will certainly occupy will be that plot of land. And that's it. But for those in Christ, we look towards a greater inheritance. One that is not of this world, one that is to come, and one that lies before us. And that is what we are to walk in faith in light of. A great book that I try to read every once in a while, and I started reading it again on this last trip, is a very old classic called The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's written in the late 1600s, and if you're familiar with it, you know it basically tells a story of a man named Christian and his journey from the city of destruction, to the celestial city it, it is a story of what it means to persevere and to walk in faith and in this story christian encounters all these different characters that represent different things that we might encounter in our christian life different struggles different trials different things In one part of the story, Christian encounters a man named Interpreter who takes him to a house and he shows him things so that he can better understand his faith. And there's one scene where Interpreter opens up a door and Christian looks in this room and he sees two small boys. One of them is named Patience. Another one is named Passion. Now, Patience is very different than most of our children and then of us as a child because Patience is very... Patient. There you go. You've all read the story. So patience is in this room, and patience is patient. He is sitting. He is quiet. He is just waiting for what he'll receive. Passion, on the other hand, is very impatient. Passion wants everything, and he wants it all now. He wants what he thinks he deserves. He wants it all right now, and he is unwilling to wait. And the picture that Christian sees is that both patience and passion have a great treasure coming to them. Patience is willing to wait on the treasure, but passion demands the treasure now. And so this picture that Christian has is this young boy, Passion, has all this treasure poured at his feet. And do you know what he does with it? He squanders it. He spins it all away, and he's left with nothing. So then Christian turns to interpreter, and he says, help me understand what's happening here. And they basically talk about it. And interpreter helps him to see that the issue at hand is not just that patience was willing to wait on his treasure. It was that patience was willing to wait on a treasure that can never be exhausted. You see, passion wanted the treasure that the world had to offer. Passion stood as an example of many of us as Christians. We want what we want and we want it now. We want God to give us things now. We want to be satisfied now. We want the promise now. But patience stands as the one who, while this world may be full of trouble and suffering and toil, he focuses on an inheritance that is to come. An inheritance that will never be exhausted because it's the inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth. And Christian, that is where we are to place our hope. Nothing in this world is worthy of our hope. Everything in this world will fail us. But we are called to put our hope in the one who exceeds this world. The one who himself is Christ Jesus and who prepares a place for us that within it lies a treasure that can never be exhausted. And when we mourn, that is the world we are to look to. And so some of you this morning, you need to know, mourn, grieve. Some of you this morning, you need to know, pray for those, seek to comfort those who are mourning and grieving. Don't comfort them by saying, turn that frown upside down. Comfort them by saying, I know it's hard. And I know this is painful. And I know this is suffering. But look with them to God's Word which tells us one day, one day, there will be a place of no more suffering and of no more pain and of no more tears. And we live in light of that land. And encourage them and pray for them. Mourn with them, but do not mourn like those who have no hope. If you would, pray with me to that end. Father, we thank You for the promise of Your Word We thank You that Abraham held on to a promise of a land that was to come. Lord, we see in this text a picture of one who was looking forward to a promise that he would die not having yet received. And Lord, that is a picture of us in the Christian life. We do not fully receive the promise until we have faced the last enemy of death. But Lord, we thank You for those in Christ that Christ has faced that enemy for us and that He has conquered that enemy, and in Him we can have life. Lord, I pray for any here who's yet to respond to that promise. Any here who is still trying to defeat sin through their works, through their efforts. Lord, that they might respond to the promise of Scripture. The promise that we celebrated through Emily's baptism earlier. The promise that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise that we can turn and repent from our sin and turn to Christ our Savior. And so Lord, I pray that You would continue to do that work in people here this morning and people throughout this area and people throughout the world as we take the Gospel to them. And Lord, I pray for those this morning in our church who are grieving and who are mourning. Lord, that they would feel the freedom to mourn and to grieve. And Lord, that we as a church would help them to mourn and help them to grieve. And for most of us, we can do nothing more than just pray for them and encourage them and share God's Word with them. But Lord, would you lead us to do this? And Lord, would you lead us not to be like so many in our world who just think we can skip over grief, that think that somehow mourning is unchristian, Lord, help us to mourn and grieve, but help us to do it as those who have their hope and their faith in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.